See you all. Just uh, want to give a welcome from me. My name's Tom, also one of the leaders here at Hope, and I uh, want to give a big welcome to those who have come to uh, celebrate with those uh, babies that we were giving thanks for earlier on. Good to have you with us, and trust that you'll enjoy uh, the rest of this morning. Uh, I want to give a little bit of a hello and a shout out to uh, some friends uh, who are here all the way from Hawaii as well. Uh, we've got Ryan and Sarah Burns, and, and Haley as well up here as well. Do you want to just give everyone a wave? Uh, these guys um, are over here in the UK, so uh, Ryan and Sarah and four of their five children are over here in the UK for three months, uh, learning a little bit from our family of churches. They lead a church out in Hawaii, and uh, they've chosen to come all the way to Ipswich, which is great. Um, they were in Cambridge for four weeks, and now they've made the upgrade to Ipswich. So uh, it's good to have these guys with us, and uh, please go and say hello to them, make them feel welcome. Uh, We'll see them some more in the coming uh, days. They're going to be leading worship at the Prayers of Many event on Friday, which is wonderful. And uh, let's be a blessing to them as much as they'll be a blessing to us. Okay, today, as you'll have seen on the visuals, uh, we're continuing our series called A Better Story. And we're going to pick up right from where we left off last week. Uh, If you weren't here last week, we looked at the sexual revolution, the massive changes that have taken place over the last 70 years or so uh, in this nation and in other Western nations. And we, we looked what is the underlying um, uh, philosophy or thinking uh, behind the sexual revolution. We looked at what is expressive individualism. The way in which uh, we uh, in the West increasingly are kind of leaving behind uh, or or not giving any weight or importance to uh, traditional authorities like family or to religious institutions and more and more giving weight and importance to to looking within and to, to, to kind of examining what we feel and actually enthroning those feelings and, and building our identity on those things, or uh, really doing as uh, the great philosopher Christina Aguilera once said, when there's no one else, look inside yourself and you will learn to begin to trust the voice within. That's kind of the deal of expressive individualism and all that has then uh, sprung up from it. And today uh, and in the coming weeks, we're going to look to a t- a attempt to answer the question, is there a better story? Is there a better story? Is there a plan or a design for our lives in the area of sex and relationships, in family, in all kinds of other areas that are related to that? And is there another way in which we can uh, find who we are and build our identity upon some things that aren't changing and transient? Because as we unpacked last week, if we just look within and we we base our identity on the way we feel, that's not a very steady place on which to base the very core of who we are. Because our feelings change and, and circumstances in our lives change. Is there a better story? And today, we want to ask the question, what is sex and marriage for? Now that might sound like a silly question, and and you might already have a thought coming to your mind. What is the deal with God and sex? Why does he seem to be so uh, interested in uh, what we do with our bodies? Why does he seem to be so interested in sex? And why? surely there's bigger things that he's bothered about. And I think you're right, there are many things that God is bothered about when he looks upon the world. I can think of, just to name a few, war and famine and injustice and poverty. I can think of many things that God is concerned about. But I do believe he is also interested in what we do with our bodies and how uh, we have been designed. 
Now, sometimes you could be forgiven that, uh, for thinking that Christians are kind of obsessed with these things. Uh, you might hear kind of uh, people kind of ranting about these things in, on, on news, uh, out, um, on the media and things like that. And I want to just say this. We as a church have not touched upon these things in great depth throughout four years. And uh, the Bible does speak about these things. So it's really important that we look to unpack what the Bible says about these things. So it won't just be this series and then we'll leave it for a few years. We're going we're gonna, to, over the years to come, we're going to look to unpack uh, what God says, what he might have to say uh, into these matters. We want to be a church that's based in the Bible. And it isn't actually the case that the church is obsessed with sex. I would actually say that we are in a culture that is obsessed with sex. As we saw last week, there's uh, in many, many... Uh, whether it's Netflix series or in songs we might listen to, there is an obsession with sex and an underlying kind of belief that you need to be having sex in order to be fulfilled and whole and somehow not a weirdo. That is kind of like coming through again and again and again in our culture. So I think it's important that we actually examine what the Bible has to say. And I think that we all care about sex being done right. I think we all care about this. Whether you are here today as a Christian or not, I think you care. I think you care about this. I think, you all, I think we all agree that there are boundaries that help us to be protected and to protect others. I, I think that's right. I think that's true that everyone believes that. Maybe we just kind of think that the boundaries fall in different places. We may have some differences on that. But I believe that this is because when we really think about it, when we really put our mind to it, we know that sex is more than just a physical thing. We know deep down that, that sex is, is more than just uh, kind of a physical release, like, like having a meal or going to the gym. We know this to be true. We know it tr- to be true because, as I said last week, we know there's a big difference between someone being punched or shoved in a pub fight or the horrors of a sexual assault. We know that those things are very different. We have this intuition deep within, and I want to ask, why do we have that intuition within us? When actually the culture might be saying exactly the opposite again and again, that we need to be having sex and that it's just a physical release that you need to have. I don't know if you've been watching Frozen Planet 2 lately. Anyone enjoying Frozen Planet 2? We're watching it most weeks. It's Once again, uh, it's, it's... uh, absolute masterpiece from the BBC, wonderful visuals of amazing animals, your polar bears and your, your penguins and your seals and so on, wonderful uh, narration, the iconic voice of David Attenborough and the, and the beautiful music underneath it all. But as we watch this, we sometimes kind of get a little bit uncomfortable because there's moments where there's a polar bear pursuing another polar bear, a male pursuing a female, and she's not really interested. And it kind of gets a bit uncomfortable to view it. It's happened on numerous episodes in this series. And you think, she's got to try and protect herself and protect her young from unwanted advances. And yet we accept that that is par for the course in the animal kingdom. right? We just No one's going to arrest that polar bear. No one's going up to him saying, sorry, sorry, you you haven't got consent here. There's a difference, right? We know that to be true. And yet we know as humans that there is something very, very different. Even though we're told in education and on programs like Our Planet and Frozen Planet and so on that we have essentially evolved. We are told that we are essentially animals, that we're just very sophisticated apes. That's what we're told on 
kind of a repeated basis. That's what we are. And yet we know deep within that we're not. And we know deep within that there is some design. And even though we watch on our TV screens instances of bed hopping on a regular basis, if we took a moment to think about it, we know it's more than a physical act. And, and some of us here know that to be very painful because we may have been used and abandoned. Or we may have used and abandoned others. Or we may have known the pain of infidelity where someone has been unfaithful to us. And our culture celebrates promiscuity in a big way. Uh, I think about the, the biggest series that has been in my lifetime. And I think of Friends. I think of uh, these six friends in New York City. It's an absolute phenomenon. Uh, the characters are so recognizable. The overarching narrative is really compelling. These six friends that journey together through life's ups and downs. And it's, there's some surreal storylines. It's laugh out loud funny in many places. And the plot lines are, are good. And they each even have their own catchphrases, like this guy with his famous catchphrase, how you doing, right? Everyone knows and loves Joey Tribbiani. He's a kind of lovable rogue, isn't he? People kind of you can see he's actually kind of a disgusting character, but he's a lovable rogue. He's celebrated uh, because he is a ladies' man. And it's, someone has actually calculated this. I didn't watch all the series and go through this, but someone has calculated that Joey slept with 51 people over the course of the 10 seasons of Friends. That's five per season, if you, you, know, you know, want to know your maths. Uh, and, and next to Joey was uh, Phoebe with 31 over the 10 series. And so there's kind of like this, it's just everywhere, this promiscuity of like sleeping around, bed hopping, sex just being a physical release, like eating chicken nuggets. That's kind of like what it's, that's kind of what's being kind of, it's just, you just go and fulfill yourself physically. That's kind of what's being portrayed here. And I'm not saying Friends isn't a funny show, it is a funny show. I'm not saying don't watch it. But we have to understand that it's norm, promiscuity is normalized. And, and hopping beds is normalized. And it's just become part of our just day to day. And yet, if we, for a moment, and I'm not saying we should all dissect sitcoms like this. But if we for a moment thought about Joey's life, we'd think, man, this guy's an absolute disaster. He himself must be really, really wrecked. Must be very, very insecure. But how many lives has he ruined? How many, how many people has he really deeply damaged? Because we know deep down that sex is more than a physical thing. We know it to be true. Even though we've been told the opposite all of the time. Now, I'm not saying we need to suddenly start dissecting every sitcom and think, man, this is terrible, I can't watch this. But we need to understand this is the waters in which we swim. We know it to be the case that sex is more than physical, and dare I say, it's in some ways sacred. We know that sex, when it's not handled well, is like a fire that hasn't been given a, a surround in which to burn. It's, it's, when it's within its right context, it's beautiful, it provides warmth and comfort, but when it's not within a fireplace and just left to go everywhere, it burns people and it hurts people. It ruins lives. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, this is why God cares about sex. Maybe it's because God cares for us. He cares for us because he loves us. And he's got a good design and a good plan for sex. Now this word design is where we have a big problem. Because the dominating narrative in our culture, as I've already said, is that there is no design. 
that we are simply the product of billions of years of evolution following, well, actually, scientists don't even agree that it's following a Big Bang, because actually now, increasingly, the Big Bang theory is being questioned by mainstream scientists. But that's the worldview, that we're all an accident, that nothing is purposeful, even though no one can really bring themselves to live that way. Even if you agree, actually, there's no purpose, and you think it's all an accident and meaningless, we can't bring ourselves to live that way. We can't bring ourselves to live as if that was true. And if all is purposeless and an accident, it makes no sense that we care about sex being done right. It doesn't make any sense. Because we're just like the polar bears. We're just like the seals. We're just kind of just looking for a physical release. It's all meaningless would be the big narrative of our culture. Now, last week, I was kind of in my comfort zone, speaking about sociology. That was something of my education background. I'm not in my comfort zone when it comes to biology, okay? I'm just not. I've got my father-in-law here, who's a doctor of biology. Maybe he should come up and give the rest of this. But listen, we can examine some things here together. You and I, common sense. Whether, like me, you've failed one of your sciences, I failed chemistry, scraped through in biology, we can, we can just think for a minute, does it seem to you like there is some design in the world. Just, just look at the person next to you for a moment. If you don't know them, don't look at them for too long, all right? Because it, it's going to get a bit awkward. But just, just briefly look at them and then quickly look forward again. Do you know how complex this creature is next to you? Maybe husbands and wives are thinking, yeah, I really do know how complex they are. But I don't know if you know how physically complex you are. This is unbelievable. Just... Google the complexity of the eyeball later on, okay? It is unbelievably complex. Do you think for a moment that what you have just looked at, awkwardly, is a product of some atoms, which we don't know where they came from, colliding together, and then billions of years later, ending up with the person next to you? Do you, do you really believe that to be true? Do you really believe that to be true? I've just asked that question. I'm not going to come out and say here that I found the key that disproves the theory of evolution. I do believe that animals adapt to survive. I believe that genetic mutations occur. But I cannot believe that this is all an accident with no design behind it. And I cannot believe that we are remotely in the same category as the animals. I think we know that to be true. We're not in the same category. And I don't think many atheists believe that deep down either. There are, for me, signs of design everywhere. From the intricacies of the body to the beauty that we are moved by. We're moved when we watch things like Frozen Planet. Because the beauty of the music and the images. We're moved by it. But ask ourselves, why? To the sense of injustice that we, we feel when great atrocities occur, like have occurred in the last few days. Why are we moved by things happening thousands of miles away? Why? Nothing to do with us, but we're moved by it. And then to consider the implausible likelihood of, of life on this earth if it's all an accident. If this was all an accident, I don't, I don't know if you've quite comprehended how lucky it is that life exists. There are so, so many things that, that have to be just so. And if they were just a fraction out, there would be no life on this planet. But this is not the way that we hear it portrayed again and again 
in our culture. David Attenborough does not agree this to be the case. Let's watch the video. And in just a few months, this young male will be ready to find a female of his own. By a stroke of cosmic good fortune, the Earth has a satellite, the Moon, which orbits our planet every 27 days. Its gravitational pull drags our oceans across the planet and so gives us the tides. Unlike currents that stir the open ocean, the tides have their greatest impact on the coasts, flushing them with nutrients from both sea and land. Did you pick up on that? A stroke of cosmic good fortune. A stroke of cosmic good fortune that we have this moon that travels by our planet, dragging the tides across the planet, basically being just eat for all of the, uh, the little creatures on every single bay, bringing the nutrients, bringing all of the good stuff to them every single day. A man as bright as David Attenborough could look at that and say, it's a stroke of cosmic good fortune. That is the understatement of the century. And, and very clever thinking, even atheist scientists would agree with that. It's the understatement of the century to say that is a stroke of cosmic good fortune. I and hundreds of people here, millions of people across the world, would see signs of design wherever we look. And we believe Christianity because it, it makes sense of the world around us. Christianity's story of God's good design, of humanity's walking away from him, going their own way, living me-centered lives, and God's enactment of a rescue plan, these things, they make sense of the world around me. I, I see these sign, the signs of it everywhere. The fingerprints of this story are everywhere. And C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker and author, said that he believes in Christianity like he believes that the sun has risen. Not because he's physically witnessed the sunrise, but because by it he sees everything else. We may not have witnessed these events of creation and of God's rescue plan, but it seems to be that all we see indicates careful design and his fingerprints throughout our very world and universe. Now, you might say, as, as Douglas Adams, the atheist uh, thinker, once said, why can't we just appreciate that the garden is beautiful without believing there's fairies at the bottom of it? Beautiful gardens don't make you believe in fairies, but they do make you believe in gardeners. We do see everywhere signs of design. And so, unsurprisingly, we believe that sex has been created by God. We do believe that God has a design for it. And what his word says about sex and marriage, we want to take seriously. And here's the deal that the sexual revolution and the expressive un, uh, individualism behind it cannot speak into. They cannot speak into what sex is for. They can't do that. All we can get is in sex ed classes that are kind of awkward. Everyone remember sex ed classes? They're kind of awkward, right? All we, all we get is make sure you're protected and make sure it's consensual. Here's the mechanics. 
make sure you get consent, make sure you're protected. There's no, there's no speaking into the power and beauty of sex. There's no speaking into the fact that it, it's, it's, it's way more than a physical thing. It's just make sure you're protected, make sure it's consensual. That's basically all we receive. But the Bible has much, a much better story than that. And much more to say about it than that. So what is God's design? What does the Bible say? Does it say that sex is pleasurable? Does it say that sex is about cementing commitment in a marriage between a husband and a wife? Does it say that sex is about procreation, about making babies? Yes to those things, but more than anything else, it shouts loud and clear that sex is supposed to be a signpost a pointer to something greater, something bigger, and something eternal. So when you, when you see a signpost, you're not supposed to stop there. So if you're going to tour around London, and you see a signpost for Big Ben, you don't think, finally, I found the signpost for Big Ben. I'm going to have a selfie with it right here. You, you would be foolish if you went home, and your family said, how was your trip to London? And they looked through your phone, and it's just pictures of you with signposts to the various landmarks around London. It would be crazy, wouldn't it? And yet, this is what happens in our culture. Sex-obsessed culture, we kind of get obsessed with the signposts, but we don't think, what is it pointing to? What, what is the greater reality that it's pointing us to? And again, C.S. Lewis, he had something profound to say about this. He tells this story. He says, I was standing today in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. And then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, the blazing sun 90 million miles away. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. A young man meets a girl. The whole world looks different when he sees her. He is, as they say, in love. And now comes a scientist and describes this young man's experience from the outside. For him, it's all an affair of the young man's genes and the recognized biological stimulus. That is the difference between looking along the sexual impulse and looking at it. Do you understand that? There's a difference, right? There's something we need to look along and see what is it pointing to. Sex is one of God's good gifts in this world. It's one of the, the beams of light, as it were. But it points us to the giver. It signposts us to Jesus. Sex and marriage in God's plan are a signpost to Jesus. And you might think, what drugs is this guy on? I want to show you from the Bible why I believe that to be true. We go to Mark chapter 2, and Jesus describes himself as a bridegroom. So let's pick it up in verse 18. Now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting, going without food, giving themselves to prayer. And people came and said to Jesus, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What a strange thing for a single man to say, to describe himself as the bridegroom. It's odd, right? You don't want to identify as a groom when you're not getting married. But this echoes the language of the Old Testament again and again, where God himself describes himself as like a husband to his people. And in Isaiah chapter 62, he says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He's talking about a time where God will be joined with his people for eternity. And this this theme comes through again and again in the Old Testament. And then Jesus starts talking about himself as the bridegroom. And he starts speaking about wedding feasts that are going to come. He starts talking about banquets. He starts talking about a home that he's preparing for his people. He starts talking about all these things. And he is identifying himself as that God in human flesh. Coming to be promised to his people. And promising them that one day he will be with them and join with them for eternity. And that there will be a great feast. That's what's going on. And so the Apostle Paul, who was one of the earliest church leaders and one of the most influential Christians of all time, he picks up on this theme in Ephesians chapter 5. We've recently been through Ephesians as a church. He says these really profound words. Husbands, love your wives. This is verse 25 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So he's starting to draw some dots together here. He's saying one day there's going to come a time where Jesus is going to draw his bride to himself, the church, God's people, all those that have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, are going to be joined together with him for eternity. And then we fast forward to to the end of all things in this age, where we see this great wedding day. We're going to read about it in just a moment, in Revelation chapter 19. But what, what I want to show us here is that there is a great story behind the story. There's a great story that is at the heart of all things in the universe, at the heart of all things in this life. A story an eternal story, one of a great unification, a uniting between Jesus and his church, a face-to-face meeting. I, I have the privilege of, of marrying quite a lot of people as a pastor, you understand, right? I, I get, I, in the last eight years, I've married a lot of, a lot of people. And I, I get to get in on the real close face-to-face bit. When, when the brides come in, the groom's been looking very nervous, and I get to see that bit. I'm not in the cheap seats, right? I'm in the, I'm in the, I get to see it. And the, the look of joy and the look of anticipation and expectation is right there before me. Soon to be married. All that's, all that's to come in their lives together. I get to see that, that face-to-face moment. Is that this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he goes on to say 
in that very section we were, we were reading in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what's the mystery? What's sex and marriage all about? What's it for? What's this joining together, this one flesh deal between a man and a woman? It's about something massive. It's, about, it's pointing to Christ and the church being joined together for all eternity. That's the signpost that marriage is. That's the, that's the beam of light that we're to look up towards to see the greater reality behind it. That's what's going on here. And Pastor Andy Robertson says, the Apostle Paul couldn't go to a wedding without looking at the groom and thinking, ah, there's Jesus. And looking at the bride and thinking, ah, the church. Every wedding we go to is supposed to be a pointer towards that great day. The story that's at the heart of the universe. This is what it says in Revelation 19. Right at the back of your Bibles if you have one with you. Verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, Here's the deal with the Bible. There's this marriage right at the beginning where God joins the first humans together, Adam and Eve. He joins them together. And then there's this kind of great divorce that really happens where, where humanity turn their back on God, try to go their own way, me-centered living. But then Jesus, is, he, he comes into this world. He, he steps in. The, son, the, the eternally existing Son of God steps in. And he starts talking of himself as the bridegroom. And he lives the perfect life that none of us have ever lived. And he lays down his life on the cross. And the Bible says that, that it was there that he was taking upon himself all of our sin and our shame, the wrath of God, the right anger towards our sin. He was taking it upon himself. And it was to win for himself a people, a people who trust in him. Are people who, who don't rely on their own righteous deeds because we can't do that, right? You know yourself, right? You know, you know that you can't rely on your goodness to be in God's good books. You know that you have to rely on someone else's who's perfect. You have to rely on Jesus. And that one day we're going to be united with him. We've heard it already this morning. He is going to create all things new. And there's going to be this great marriage feast where Christ and the church are united. This is a union between two different people with profound differences. Some would say that Jesus never touched upon the definition of marriage. He really did. He gets asked tricky questions. People try and stump Jesus. And he says that marriage is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. It's a joining together. It's a one flesh union for life. If he wanted us to think differently, 
he could have said it differently. You need to understand this. Jesus was not afraid of what people might say around him in the culture. So he wasn't being swayed by, I can't really say this because I'm going to get hammered. No, no, no. He, he gave the definition of marriage. And so what the Bible gives as a definition is not just a technical definition. It's a profound mystery that marriage points to. And if marriage is a signpost that points beyond itself to something bigger, we can't change the picture. And pornography tries to change the picture, right? You know, we sometimes think, well, pornography's not good because it kind of makes us lust and it, you know, makes, it objectifies women. Well, the thing with pornography is that it basically does away with any notion that sex is about anything more than just a physical release. It does away with any notion that sex is about anything more than a, than a just kind of, I'm just going to go and have some fun for half an hour. It rejects the notion that it's about something sacred, something bigger. And so our culture may dumb down the meaning of sex and marriage, may change, may redefine things many more times in the years to come. I expect we will see further redefinitions of marriage. And you know what? That's the right of the government to do that and the electorate to vote them in or out. But we as the church can't change the picture. We can't do that. Because Jesus has spelt it out. It's not ours to do. According to a BBC article, sologamy is now a growing trend where people marry themselves. That's according to a BBC article recently. It's a growing trend in the West. You can, you can look it up. It's not, I'm not making this up. Listen, we as the church can't change the picture because that's not ours to do. Jesus Christ has painted it. And just as with everything he says in his word, we can't say, Jesus, I don't like, let me do it. I don't like the way you've done it. Let me do it. We don't get to do that. It's very clear. So I want, I want to land this by saying this is good news for us, okay? This is good news for us because whether we're married or not, we get to live as those who are engaged. Okay, we get to live as those who are engaged. Now, we've got a few people in here who are engaged to be married. Dan and Maya are here for the weekend. Go and say hi to these lovely people. They're getting married next year. And they probably have already had people come up to them this morning and say, oh, have you set a date yet? Not long to go now. Are you getting excited? What are you going to do? What are you? And for the next year, that's probably what's, they're going to get those conversations hundreds of times. And it's going to get to the point where it's going to get a bit, a bit annoying after a while. But as Christians, we get to live as those who are engaged, looking to a, a glorious day. We, get to, we, we all get to live like that. Whether we're married or not, we're, we're not thinking this is all it's ever going to be. We know there's something better on the horizon. We know that there's something sweeter and something that will fulfill every desire that we have. Because here's the deal, guys. Sex and marriage don't actually fulfill us. And sometimes marriages end up collapsing or end up in a lot of trouble because kind of husbands have put a lot of hope in, when I marry this woman, my life is going to be complete. Or the other way, women think, oh, if I marry this guy, then I'm going to be whole. I'm going to be complete and I'm never going to have any problems again. And then you quickly realize that's not the case. We put pressure on each other to think this is going to fulfill me. But God says, he's the one who brings life and life to the full. Not someone else. Not anything on this earth. He alone. 
And one day we're going to know all of our aching and longing fulfilled in him. And he's going to show us his passionate love for all eternity. And he's going to show us his faithful love for all eternity. And we'll be blown away with how faithful God has been to us. Because we, we, we don't really know, do we? Because we're wandering all of the time and we're doing stupid things all of the time. Do you know what? God's faithfulness grows and grows towards us. This is why it's so wonderful when a couple celebrates 70 years of marriage or whatever. Because it just speaks of how their faithfulness has grown and grown and grown. And we're going to one day revel in the faithful love that God has towards us, which we don't deserve. And listen, we will understand the privilege we have. I mean, I don't know if you've been over the last three years to to limited size weddings. We had this thing in this nation where you could have 30 people at a wedding during the COVID time. Some of you know that very well. It was painful. But if you got invited to one of those weddings, you you were like man, I'm so privileged to be here. I'm one of their top 30 people. I I made it into the top 30. I think in my case, I was officiating, so that's how I got in. But you understand, this is such a privilege. I, I get to be in on this. Listen, there'll be no one there on that day celebrating that great feast who says... I'm not not surprised I'm here, really. I mean, over the years, Jesus has found me to be a very trustworthy advisor. He's really appreciated my work. No one's going to say that. It'll all have been of grace. It'll all have been of his mercy. We don't deserve it. And he's poured it out on our lives. It'll only be those that have trusted in the one who does deserve to be there. And in his work on the cross, it'll only be those who have trusted in him that will be there. And we'll rejoice in him. Because we, we all know that we've messed up, right? And most of us have messed up in this area, whether in our thoughts or in our actions or the things we didn't do, which we should have done. We didn't love people well. We've all messed up. And we might think, I, my situation is hopeless. There's no hope for me because I'm so broken sexually. And some of you, you know that. You just think, I'm just so broken. I've hurt people. People have hurt me. I've been used and abused. There is hope for you, but you've got to throw yourself onto the one who is perfect. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, but was without sin. So he's fully able to sympathize, but he never went there. We We get to throw ourselves on him, on his mercy, and we find that he forgives. We find that he cleanses us fully. We find that he then starts to transform us day by day. We find that he starts, as we keep our spiritual eyes fixed on him, he changes us. The Bible says, from one degree of glory to the next. And so you might think, yeah, he saved me some years ago. I don't feel like I'm making much progress. Keep your spiritual eyes fixed on him. And as as we're fixed on him, he will begin to change us day by day, week by week. And you'll meet people who you haven't seen for a while and they say, you've really changed. You've really grown. You might not see it yourself, but he will do it. And I want to just encourage some of you here who are single. We're going to, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at thriving as, as a single person. We're going to see how singleness in a different way points, signposts people to Jesus. But some of you here, you may never have sex. Some of you here may never marry, may never have sex. 
Some of you here may have been divorced or you may be widowed and you may never remarry and you may never have sex again. And there is a culture that is screaming at you that you should be having sex. There's a culture that's screaming at you that if you really want fulfillment, you've got to be in bed with someone. There is really, really good news for you. I want to share it with you in just a moment. I want to share some Bible encouragements with you. But as with so many other things that are good in this life, we need to, we need to be learned, those who learn to look up the beam of light, to look to the reality behind it, to look to the blazing sun that is Jesus. We need to be those that look to do that. He alone can fulfill us, and knowing him really does bring life to the full, now and forever. But I encourage you from these verses in, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. Same guy, Apostle Paul, writing. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <laughs> this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're going away. They're not going to be around forever. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The Bible doesn't say there will be no marriage in heaven. It says there'll be no marriage between humans in heaven. There'll be a great marriage between us, the church of Jesus Christ, and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. But all the things of this earth that people clamor for, they are transient. They're going away. And you might think, this guy, who is this guy saying light and momentary affliction? Does he have a clue? What is this guy on? Because most afflictions don't feel light. And temporary at the time, do they? You might think this guy probably didn't have much to deal with in his life. This guy had a lot to deal with in his life. He had more than most of us here to deal with in his life. He knew affliction. But it's, it's those who've got a grasp on the weight of the eternal glory that will be ours. It's those who've got a grasp on that that can really call that light. It's, it's when we get a hold of that. You sometimes go for a long walk with your shopping, right? And your arms are about to fall off. And you've walked for a mile with heavy bags and you get home and you put them down and then you pick up the TV remote and you suddenly think you're as strong as Tim Mann. You think, man, where have these muscles come from? Because you've laid down something heavy and you're suddenly picking up something light. Listen, when we grasp the, the, the weight of the glory that is going to be ours in eternity, we can say these momentary afflictions, they're light. They're light. I can call them light because I know that there's a glory that's coming my way. It doesn't even compare. It's not even worth comparing. But we've got to keep our eyes and heart on the eternal weight of glory that is coming our way. We, we walk by faith and not by sight. This doesn't mean that we, we leap into the dark without evidence of what's there. It means that for now, the most precious and important realities in the world are not things that are within our physical senses. They are beyond our physical senses. The most precious realities in the world are beyond our physical senses. So we, so we look to the things unseen, as it were, through the lens of all that Jesus has done for us, through the gospel. 
And we, we treasure all that is going to be ours in eternity. Shall we pray together? We're going to have time for a song. So if the, if the worship team could come and lead us. I want to pray for us as a church. These are big truths for us to, to take a hold of. And um, more than anything, guys, I want us to just fix our eyes on this, this glory that will be ours. Should we stand together? Before we pray, I'm just mindful of that there are going to be a number of people here who are, you just know, I feel really afflicted with things that have happened to me, things that I've done, people that have abandoned me, all kinds of confusion. We want to stand with you and pray with you. We're going to have, I'm going to be down here, a bunch of prayer team are going to be down here just after we've sung a couple of verses of this song through, maybe just right at the very end. We're going to just pray. We're going to have a number of people. We've got prayer team. People are in leadership some, in some ways here. We're going to get down. We're going to pray with you. But more than anything else, friends, we want to help lift your eyes to the weight of glory that is coming. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we, we thank you that all of the good gifts in this life are but signposts. They are signing, they're, they're pointing us to a greater reality, a greater story. They're pointing us to a, an eternal hope an eternal weight of glory that will be ours. And Lord, we want to be those that are not earthly minded, but heavenly minded. We don't want to put our weight and our trust in things that will ultimately disappoint, that will ultimately leave us feeling high and dry and just not in a good place. We want to be those that, with our spiritual eyes, look to the glorious future that will be ours. The day when we see you face to face, Lord Jesus. That moment, you will be far, you will far exceed all of our hopes and imagination. You will be immeasurably more than we could have hoped for. (laughs) Lord Jesus, you will be immeasurably more and we will be with you and we'll live with you for eternity. And, and, and our joy in eternity will be you. And Lord, we want you to be our joy right now. We want you to be our joy right now in this earth where things seem to be screaming at us. We want to fix our eyes on you and say it's about you. And we're looking to you. And we're trusting in your word. And we believe you've got good things for us. Thank you, Lord. You are not a killjoy. You are the one who, as we heard from John last week, the one who has pleasures evermore. You have joy abounding in your presence. I pray that my brothers and sisters will know that right now. I pray that I will know that joy and pleasure in your presence, even as we worship you. Help us to fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen.